0: Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4, and we are, in just a moment, going to dive right in. But now, let's pray as we enter into God's Word together and ask His mercy and His hand upon us. Lord, we open Your Word. Um, we do so, uh, uh, this is something we do every week, but I pray that it would not be something that we presume upon as we do so today. May it not be something that we do casually, may it not be, do, be something that we do with an attitude or um, a disinterest that would reveal deeper thoughts or deeper uh, inclinations in our heart that you you cannot speak to us where we are, that you are disinteresting, that you are far and distant and not knowable, and that you don't have say or influence or power or, or even total authority over our lives here. All of these things are not true. You are the king speaking to your citizens, and by your spirit, your word addresses us with an authority and with a precision that we cannot muster and nobody can muster apart from your word and your power and the work of your spirit as we gather together. And so, Lord, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a school-aged child, uh, I was... Welcome[d] into at one point a world that was entirely uncommon, a world that was t- entirely foreign to me, and that world was the world of daytime TV, when I was homesick from school. You see, one day I was not feeling well, and so I stayed homesick. And uh, I this was before iPads and iPhones and all of that, and so the ways in which a student would entertain themselves when they were homesick from school were uh, few and far between. It was Uh, TV or video games or, I mean, if you read a book, that kind of thing. But um, I one day was uh, deciding to, as as I was homesick, I turned on uh, The Price is Right, hosted by uh, Bob Barker back in the day. Many of you might remember that. And I realized something was odd as I watched it. Not the show itself, but just kind of the whole TV viewing experience. And as time wore on, I'm not the quickest person at picking things up sometimes, but as time wore on, it started to set into me And that was that this was just different than the TV shows I normally watched at other times during the day or in the evening or on the weekend, the cartoons and all that. And the thing that made it all different, the Price is Right itself was a strange show, or I I found it quite fascinating and enjoyed it, actually. But the commercials were what was so interesting. I saw commercials I had never seen before. I saw commercials about converting your money into silver or gold. I saw commercials about, hey, are you feeling as if your body is aging and aching. Is this part of your body hurting? Or is this part, here, here's a medicine, here's an ointment or a cream. And all that I started to realize was the target audience for daytime TV, like The Price is Right, is far different than the target audience for Stephen's cartoons on Saturday morning. And that's not just for children watching TV shows that maybe grandpa and grandma watch. But parents, grandparents today... Have you ever tried to watch anything your kids watch? Have you ever tried to listen to music that your kids or grandkids listen to? You probably can't even pronounce the names of some of these musicians. You try to play the latest game on wherever games are played, computers, iPhones, whatever the case is, social media. You try to follow the latest crazes on TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, uh whatever ones i'm missing some of those are words you have never heard before in your life until i just said them and some of you teenagers today even probably hear me say those things and think wow you're out of touch man we're not on those anymore there's new ones we all have worlds around us that we're not familiar with we enter into those worlds and we get disoriented we lose all senses of awareness well, that's what we see in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. We're going to see Jesus as he continues to make his way through his Sermon on the Mount. He speaks to things that are familiar, like you're watching the TV show, but it's a different experience. He speaks to things that are familiar with his audience, like today, giving to the needy, and yet he brings them into an experience of it or an understanding of it that is far different than that which his audience actually knew. So let's read this together. Matthew 6, 1 through 4. And what I think this shows us is that when we give to the needy, what Jesus is holding up before us is when we give to the needy, we should do so in a manner that seeks not the praise of man, but the pleasure of God. Look at this as I read, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. reward you when we give to the needy we should do so in a manner that seeks not the praise of man but the pleasure of god as we enter into this section of the sermon on the mount we're going to see jesus this week and the next two weeks to come lord willing address three things that religious spiritual church going people do and even do rightly commendable things spiritually mature things, and yet he's going to turn them around and say, let's check the heart behind why we do them. So he's going to address our giving to the needy. He's going to address next week how we pray, and he's going to teach us how to pray, and then the following week he's going to address fasting. So these are not things that are outside the bounds of what are good and good. And, 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 gifts for the people of God in order to enjoy communion with God. I'm going to say these are good, but let's make sure the heart behind them is good. So maybe the first thing to ask as we start to unpack this passage, as you start to look into God's word and Jesus starts to address what we perceive to be our service to him, today specifically through our giving to the needy, but more broadly spread out in whatever you think of how you uh uh uh, serve or make make offering to god or or whatever you think in your life i give to god what i think he wants of me as you do that allow jesus to ask what is the heart behind it allow jesus to poke and to prod things like motivations and things like goals for what you hope to receive from that And in this, we're going to see a warning from Jesus about prideful self-righteousness. And then self-righteous giving that leads to hollow praise, but then self-forgetting giving that invites the pleasure of God our Father. Look at this warning about prideful self-righteousness in verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. key thing for us to grasp as we read this Jesus laying this out for not only giving but prayer and fasting to come he lays out kind of this thesis statement in verse one he says beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them so he's saying yeah you're doing righteousness but beware of doing it in front of other people so that you may be seen by them and now catch this second part of this the latter part of verse one that helps us to understand what Jesus is getting at here. He's not just saying, don't be prideful. He's saying, don't be prideful because I'm more concerned for your good than you are. Look at this at the end of verse 1. He says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This latter part of verse 1, speaking of rewards, is actually referenced not only in verse 1, but in the the last part of verse 2 and verse 4. Just look at that. Uh, uh, Verse uh, 2. He says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And then the end of verse four, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus is now saying, let's get to not the action, but the rewards that are being sought. And so as he does this, he stops us right cold in our tracks and he says, your spirituality, your praying, your fasting, your giving to the needy is not for you to receive the ad- admiration of man. Man. But all that you do thinking you're serving God before the eyes of the world around you are in order for you not to be an exhibit of godliness for people to behold, but in order for you to enjoy the communion with God that you have as his people. See, what Jesus is doing here is he changes how we understand our interaction with God, and he brings it from some kind of two-dimensional level where we just think God is there, I'm here, and we kind of have this place where we meet in one, one spot, and, and I try to make him happy, and he does his thing where he gives us good days like this sometimes, and he, he tries to get us through when the days aren't so good, whether literally or metaphorically in our lives. But that is not it at all. What Jesus is showing us is this, not the two-dimensional picture of the relationship between us who are God's people and God, but a three-dimensional picture of it where God himself is our reward. He is more knowable than we imagine. He is more uh, 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 incredible than we imagine. He is more beautiful than we, can, than we can fathom. He is the God who is truly with us, and He is the God who wants us to find in Him and in Him alone the deepest satisfaction that our hearts might long for. And here Jesus is going to show us how this happens. God is not a being to know about. He is a treasure to be prized and adored in the deepest recesses of our hearts. And that is one reason Jesus came to us to show us this. So let me offer this caveat. Does your faith seem dry? It may seem dry because you are trying to fill it with the empty vats, with the bitter water, of the pleasure of other people who might see this faith on display? Does your faith seem dry because your communion with God is at a trickle or even has dried up itself like a reservoir that has been parched by relentless dry conditions and drought? So as we ask this, let me ask, what is the state of your own soul? Not what is the state of your church attendance, not what is the state of your outside religious activity, but what is the state of your soul when it comes to whether or not God is your reward. Look at Jesus dive into this now as he warns us of self-righteousness. Now he goes on in verse 2. And he shows us that as we think about how we serve the needy, he shows us a manner of self-righteousness that we think might satisfy this thirst but it's like drinking salt water. It's just going to further dehydrate us. And he warns us against self-righteous giving with the expectation of the reward of the praise of others. So he says in verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward." Now one thing, as we start here in verse 2, one thing to note, Jesus doesn't say, thus, if you give to the needy. He doesn't say, thus, some of you should give to the needy. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't offer any qualifiers. He, He assumes that we, as the people of God, will be giving to the needy, to the poor, to those who are less fortunate among us and in our world. It's even something that's part of our very church covenant. We who are members of First Baptist Church of Situate have covenanted many things together, and one of which is that we will seek to relieve the needs of the needy and the less fortunate around us. So this is something that we as the people of God recognize ought to be a part of our regular life together. But it's also something that Jesus, as he lays it out here for us, this is not an exhortation to give to the needy. He's saying, he's assuming you give to the needy, but this is an exhortation of how we give to the needy. Of the work going on underneath the surface as the machinery of our hearts do the work of giving to those who are in need. The thing that Jesus gets at is not saying, hey, go give to the needy, but he gets at, hey, what are you doing when you give to the needy? And verse 2 warns us, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. You ever heard the phrase, don't toot your own horn? You realize that is where this comes from. I'm not exaggerating here. That is where this comes from. I don't know, if we, we, there's not exact evidence one way or another as to whether or not this was something that religious people were, were actually doing, or if Jesus was kind of speaking with hyperbole here and, and exaggerating a bit for the sake of making the point. But the picture here is of somebody who sees the needy and sees that they are able to help, so they march down the street, they host their own parade and they, they enlist a marching band to come with them to celebrate them as they sound horns and watch as they drop money in the basket or as they give to the less fortunate. And Jesus says, get that out of your hearts. And we might look at this and say, well, okay, we don't do that. We have a very subtle offering basket over there. Some of you may not even know it's over there. I never mention it. I always forget to. That's not even what this is about. You don't have to give to the church to give to the needy. The Lord brings people in our lives, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our interactions with those around us that he brings across our paths not in order that we might toot our own horns but in order that we might be agents of his mercy to those who need it in a tangible, very real way at that time. And so Jesus says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So you might say, "Okay, but I don't do that. I I don't even know how to play a horn, much less toot my own horn. But we all do do that. Can I be honest with you? Let me ask you something, I'll be vulnerable with you, I'll share a little with you, and you can say, maybe I see a little of myself in Stephen. Or maybe you'll say, I don't, Stephen's just an extra rotten kind of guy. Do you ever feel the need to share something about yourself that makes yourself look better than you are? Or makes yourself, maybe not look better than you are, but makes yourself in that moment, at that time, with that instant, with that situation, look particularly good. You helped somebody in need you sacrificed of yourself to somebody for, for the sake of somebody, and you just had to go tell somebody about it. Sure, you couched it in, hey, you know, so-and-so, like, like they're really in need. We need to pray for them. And you know what I did? I, I really sacrificed for them and gave a whole half hour of my help to them. We, did, we may not toot our horn, but we do so metaphorically in all sorts of ways. You ever feel the need to insert how important you are to a situation or to a circumstance or to a person that needs your aid. You know that you have aid, you know you have assistance, you know, have, you, know you have gifts, you know you have, you have ways of caring for others that you can offer to them and that, they alone, that, that you alone perhaps can give them. And so in a strange sense, you get a sense of prideful self-worth that you are the answer to their prayers. And it makes you feel good. Maybe I'm the only one. Or maybe we all ought to consider our own hearts and how we like to be valued and praised by others when we feel strong and they feel weak. We'll get to that a little more in a moment. When you tell stories, are you often the heroes of the story? I want you to see something about the insidious nature of this prideful, puffed-up, self-serving way of giving to the needs of others. Jesus says in verse 2, he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. And now we, we see the word hypocrite, and we like have the alarm bells go off, like, yes, we don't want to be hypocrites. Hypocrites, bad. Us, humble, giving, self-sacrificing people, good. But when we think of hip- hypocrites, or when we think of hypocrisy, Uh, we might be getting wrong what Jesus is saying here. And here's what I mean, okay? When you think of somebody as a hypocrite, right now think quietly in your mind without speaking out loud as to what you're thinking of. But what do you picture when you think of a hypocrite? If you're like me, you think of somebody who says, you go do this in order to make yourself holy, in order to appear righteous before God. And it'd be like if I was telling you all to go do something, like give to the needy, and then I never gave to the needy. A hypocrite that we think of is somebody who says, go do this thing, but they don't do it themselves. They act a certain way, they talk a certain way in in Sunday worship or in Bible study, and they look a certain way, but then whenever things calm down, that's not who they are. But that is not what Jesus is getting at here. The issue isn't those who are in, in the synagogues and on the streets who are telling everybody, hey, go give to the poor, but then they aren't. They're the ones who are giving to the poor, doing the good thing, but they're tooting their own horn. So this is a more insidious nature of hypocrisy, and here's what it is. It's this insidious, this this dangerous, this this disastrous to the soul form of hypocrisy where this word hypocrite actually comes from an original Greek word of the time that describes somebody who is an actor who wears a mask on stage and they're putting on a performance, okay? And so Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites who put on the mask, who do the performance, who, who, who... then are, are so enmeshed in this performance of thinking themselves righteous and living off of the, the applause of others that they get so blinded and they blur the lines between reality and performance to the point that the praise of others and the visible action of their service to others blinds them to their real spiritual state. The hypocrite here is not the person who is saying do this and, and that, but they don't do it themselves. It's the person who is doing the good the giving to the needy, and yet they are blinded to the fact that they are doing it for all the wrong reasons. That is the hypocrisy that Jesus is getting at here. And the warning for us is a warning that causes us to see maybe I have been giving to the needy, maybe I have been caring for those who are less fortunate than me, maybe I have been sacrificing of myself greatly for whatever reason for others. And the whole time I have thought myself to be spiritually mature because of these actions. And yet I have actually been living in the lie of my own self-righteousness. That is the warning that Jesus gives us here. And so... In a day and age where we all hate masks. We're going to pause. Just for the uh, sirens to go by real quick. In a day and age where we all hate masks where we go to the grocery store or the pharmacy and the immediate moment we walk out of there, we rip the mask off of our face and like do the breathing. Like, <gasps> we didn't know how much longer we could go on. We, were, we had that mask on for a whole 12 minutes. In a day and age where we hate masks, maybe a good spiritual exercise for all of us was, would be to, as we put on our mask and take our mask off as we go about our business and life, to ask ourselves how much or how given might I be to being a hypocrite who wears a mask of spiritual maturity to the point that I blind myself and I'm just acting before the world and even before my own self. The way you know you're acting is does your heart get puffed up and prideful because of the work you're doing for others? Prideful in self-importance and self-celebration? Or does your heart just graciously, gently desire to care for the needs of those that God has brought around you? Now, we don't just go from self-exalting, seeking the praise of men, but we move on now to self-forgetting giving, to that which Jesus holds up for us, to the self-forgetting giving to the needy that basked in the pleasure of God our Father. So Jesus says... Those who give to the needy uh, uh, to toot their own horn at the end of verse 2, they have received their reward. And that reward is pitiful when compared to the rewards of God. It's a reward where they get the empty praise of man that lasts for a few moments and then dries up. Jesus says, verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's just an illustration here. This is a... Uh, 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 an illustration here where you're, you're giving to the needy, you're, you're serving the needs of those around you, is, is so, is, is so uh, uncelebrated by you that, that even, even metaphorically, you, you serve and you give with your right hand and your left hand is, that is so close to you and is so tied up with you they don't even know. Anonymity of m- meeting the needs of others is a beautiful thing. And you know why that is the case. Sometimes anonymity just can't, it it, it can't be achieved, all right? You have to give of yourself to go get somebody's medicine or to drive them to the doctor or something. You're not going to put on a mask and drive them there so they don't know who's doing it for them. Not that. But anonymity that seeks not the praise of myself, but seeks the sanctification of my soul is a beautiful thing. And let me give you five reasons why I believe this to be the case. So Jesus says, give to the needy, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Why is it good that our giving be in in secret? Here are five reasons why. First, it, it protects us from seeking the pride of adoration of men. It protects us from seeking the pride of being adored, being celebrated by those around us. Second, when we seek to give to others without seeking our own gain, it sanctifies our hearts in order that we might be mindful of the fact that we are simply vessels of God's goodness flowing through us to others. And so as I give to the needs of others, and I don't toot my own horn about it, I recognize that I am only able to give because of what God has given to me, therefore I can give to them only recognizing that, hey, I'm a recipient of His grace, and there is nothing about me in and, and this situation that deserves any praise above God who has blessed me in order to give. Third, this allows the recipient of that gift, of that care, of that sacrifice on our part, of that that mercy that we show that person, it allows them to praise God and not us. When they don't know where the gift has come from, when they don't know where the mercy and and the goodness that God has tangibly given to them to pay the rent that month, to buy the groceries that month, when they don't know where that has come from, that keeps them from being able to say, oh, look at so-and-so, isn't he a great guy? but it says, I don't know where it came from, but God is good. It fosters an attitude that is otherworldly. It fosters a testimony to the world of the goodness of God, to a world that seeks to lift up the goodness of one another. And we want to celebrate that, which is good and virtuous and right. Don't get me wrong. But, when we intentionally don't seek the praise of those around us, when we do good. This is an attitude that is entirely otherworldly in a world that seeks to pat itself on the back and does good hoping that others notice. And then lastly, it deepens our own communion with God. Jesus concludes in verse 4, he says, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So when you give to the needy, when you sacrifice of yourself for the sake of the care of others, Jesus says it's good to be selfish. It's good to be selfish. It's good to say what's in it for me. But he says don't say what's in it for me and sell yourself short. The greatest pleasure from allowing ourselves to be vessels of God's mercy through which God gives to and cares for others around us and us doing it without seeking fanfare the greatest pleasure of that is that God himself communes with us. We enjoy a fellowship, a relationship with him, an intimacy with him that cannot be found when we are intoxicated on the praise of those around us. Part of the way in which this intimacy with God is known is something that we've seen throughout this passage that I haven't pointed out to you yet. But before I point it out to you, I want to ask you something. Going back to myself and the illustration that I talked about, how sometimes I am the biggest one to toot my own horn. And I'm going to say some of us are the biggest ones to toot our own horns as well, okay? The reason why I think so many of us are prone to do this, so many of us are tempted to do this, so many of us are lured to make much of ourselves in the eyes of those around us is because we are so insecure and we want the praise and the affirmation and the acceptance of those whose eyes are upon us. We want to tell them how good we are that they may say to us, yes, you are good. But what we see here is that there is an acceptance. There is a a relationship, a security, a communion with God himself, an affirmation that is found in God himself that is far greater than any earthly affirmation any of us can have. And so perhaps you feel as you enter in today, you feel as if there's this insecurity that you carry in which you have to find the acceptance of others. And I don't say that in a, in a way of beating you up. That's something I carry. That's something many of us, a lot of us carry. But what Jesus holds up before us is that we can let that go and we can enjoy this communion with God. And we see why here. Because in verse 4, look at how he describes God. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The communion we have with God is not one we earn by our actions, but one that is born By the fact that He is our good Father who has created us. And not only who has created us, but who has adopted us into His family. So He is not the God who is distant. He is the God who is near. And He is the God who has brought us from being orphans who were away from Him to being adopted children of His, where we enjoy the constant pleasure and smile of the Father upon us no matter what we do. God's eyes upon us and his mercy towards us are something that we who are the children of God never have to worry that we will lose. Many of you who are parents, you know this. You know that there is nothing that your children could do that could cause you to love them any more or to love them any less. As the, tree, as, as the leaves fall, let that be a reminder to you of the mercy of God that is constantly being showered upon His children. So may I urge you, Jesus warns us to give and to give rightly, but to give in a manner that is aware of the fact that we are children of God. And to give in a manner in which we know that as we are used by our Father, to care for his world that is in need and his other children that are in need. That we enjoy a communion with him as we are vessels of his mercy. Not shining the spotlight on ourselves, but shining the spotlight on him. So let me close by asking, are you a child of God? Not have you been created by him, but have you been adopted into his family? One way to know that is to investigate your heart. And to investigate your heart and say, okay, is this a test that I would pass where I am quite prideful? The answer is none of us pass it. And so the next question to ask is, am I his child because I've acknowledged that I do not pass this test? But I am counting on his mercy that has been lavished upon me through Jesus Christ, who he himself bore in his cross the penalty for my sin, for my arrogance, for my pride. And he himself, the son of God who knew no sin, became sin that we might become sons and daughters of God and our sin be wiped out entirely and wiped from the record That our God may make us his own, not through anything of our own, but through his sending his son and him adopting us as sons and daughters. If you would like to know more about what it means to truly be a son or daughter of God, that you might know him as father, that you might know and commune with him in his mercy and in his grace, I would love to speak with you at the conclusion of our service. I'd love to share with you more about this. I'd love to share with you even how the Lord did it in my own life. Would you come drink from the mercy of God? Would you acknowledge your neediness? The whole situation here, we've been talking about this, presuming that we are the ones who have abundance and we help the needy. And that's true, that's what Jesus is addressing here. But we who are in a sense of abundance where we might could help the needy, We're only going to fully realize this and fully embrace this when we recognize that we are the needy and that God in his abundant grace has first helped us. Let's give praise to his name, to our Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, who has made us sons and daughters. Would you pray with me? Oh God, you are our Father. We are your sons and daughters. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us a people of, of great generosity, but never let our generosity out, outpace our selflessness. Lord, may our humility, may our awareness of and, and rejection of prideful tendencies, may they, these far outrun anything that we would do where we would seek our own praise. And so, Lord, make us an abundantly generous people. Help us to know one another more, to be aware of needs, and to be able to care for one another all the more. But, Lord, help our humility and our communion with you to run first, to lead the way, to plow the road of our generosity. We may never do so for pats on the back but then we may do so because the smile of our Father already rests upon us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.